Let's turn in our Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And as you're turning there, I want you to consider a question and really think about it. Um, What is your goal in life? What is your goal in life? Or maybe another way to say it is, what what do you aim to accomplish in this life? I want to look at two prominent figures uh, in, in history who set goals for their lives. The first one was Steve Jobs. Steve Jobs, as many of you guys know, was the uh, CEO and co-founder of Apple. Uh, He was an entrepreneur who had the idea um, of providing, or a vision of providing a computer for the rest of us. His goal was that computers at the time were too expensive, they were uh, only for the elite, and we wanted to provide them for the regular average person. And using his innovative ability, he was able to create a very successful company and became a very uh, wealthy businessman doing it. His, uh, his company currently is estimated to be almost $1 trillion. Uh, today, his, his goals still affect society today. He's changed the way we interact. He's changed the way that we communicate with one another. But he has died and passed away in 2011, accomplishing the goal that he set out to do, and he left behind the success, the billions that he earned in stock value. Another man who set out to have goals uh, for his life was Alexander the Great, a man who was put into uh, the position of being the king at 20 years old. Uh, He set in his mind the goal that he wanted to be the biggest empire that's ever existed. He wanted to be totally dominant in his military campaign. And so he went all throughout Asia and Northeast Africa uh, doing just that. He was undefeated in battle. His conquests included Syria, Phoenicia, Judea, Egypt, Mesopotamia, Gaza, Persia, Bactria, and he extended his borders all the way as far as India. And he not only just conquered these places, he, he was able to actually have a place where conquerors and the conquered were able to live peacefully with one another. All the while, he made his name great. And even today, we read about stories about this, these two men, and, and we'll read about them in history books, about what they've done and how they've contributed to society. And he also, he passed away at 32 years old from malaria. What do these men both have in common? Why do I bring them up to you? It's because they both set goals for their lives. They both had an aim of what they wanted to accomplish in their life. One, he wanted to be a successful businessman and he got wealthy off of his innovative ideas. The other one wanted to gain lands. He wanted to gain possessions. He wanted to control a large amount of people. Both were admirable goals. Both still affect society in one way or another today. We would not be the same place we would without these two men. But what else did they have in common? Well, the obvious is that ultimately they both, they both passed away. They both died. It's Death is, is not something that we want to talk about. It's not something that we like to talk about. But death is, re, is inevitably a part of life. And regardless of how successful both these men were in their goals that they accomplished, ultimately, they both passed away. And, and their goals, they weren't able to take anything with them past this life. Everything that they did in this life is left here for the rest of the world to enjoy, for the rest of the world to uh, build upon But really, in these two men's life, they have nothing they can carry with them to eternity. Their goals were fairly worldly. Although the Lord used some of these men's goals 
for his purposes, the men's intention was a worldly mindset of having used these, uh, these goals to, in, in tr- to receive you know, success, fame, really didn't have any eternal significance for themselves. And many people similarly have goals. They set for themselves to be successful. They set an aim to, be, uh, to gain riches, to gain possessions. They want to gain significance in the world. They want to gain uh, you know, popularity. They want to be loved. They want to be accepted. These are the common goals that you'll see or hear from people. But in this passage, Paul reminds us and wants us to think about our goals in our lives our aim in life. What do we strive for? What do we want to accomplish by the time we reach the end of our lives? And he kind of tells us how to have the right aim. What is the right aim for the Christian life? And it's found in verse 9 of our passage today, and I'll just read it to start off with. It says, Therefore, we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to him. This is our focus in life. This is the goal that we want to have. We want to live in light of eternity. We want to have an eternal perspective ingrained in the back of our minds. Our aim is to be well-pleasing to the Lord. And leading up to this passage, we talked about, uh, in in chapter 4, Paul is describing the sufferings that he went through. He's talking about the difficulties he faced in his physical body. He talked about all these things and considered them light afflictions, as he says. He reminded them of the trials he faced. He reminded them of the persecutions, the physical beatings. And yet, he didn't focus on that primarily. He said instead, he talked about this future hope that he had. A future hope that after we die, there's something more to come. And he he reminds us at the very end of chapter 4 that we're not to look forward to the things that are seen. We're to look forward to the things that are not seen. The things which are eternal. So in light of eternity, in light of having an eternal mindset, Paul picks up in chapter 5 where we discuss four major topics surrounding having an eternal mindset. The first one is found in verses 1 through 4. It talks about death and what will happen to our bodies when we die. The second topic he talks about is the confidence that we have in these things through faith. The third thing he talks about is making it our aim to be well-pleasing to the Lord. And finally, the warning to unbelievers in light of eternity. And the first topic he has is is death and our bodies. What will happen to them when we die? And for Paul, he's saying that if, if he suffers, if he's persecuted, what is the worst thing that the world can do to him? What is the absolute worst thing that can happen to him? He can be killed. He can, he can lose his life. Death. That's the absolute worst thing that can happen as far as persecution is concerned. So then the logical question is, like, what would happen if Paul were to die? What would happen if a believer were to die? So we start in verse 1, and we we answer that question. Verse 1 says in chapter 5 of 2 Corinthians, For we know that if our earthly house, or this tent, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Paul, he was a tent maker by trade. And uh, he uses a, a work analogy that he's very used to. And he describes our physical bodies as a tent. And many of you have used tents in the past. And you know that the tents are only used for a short period of time. We go 
camping every year to Yosemite, and you know some people will set up tents and they put them up quickly and they're there for maybe a couple days, maybe a week at most, and then we quickly take them down and we pack them up. And the same is true of our bodies, our physical bodies. They're only here for a short period of time. In fact, James even describes it as a vapor. He says, for what is even your life? Is it even a vapor that appears for a time and then vanishes away? Have you ever been on a cold morning and you've just come out of your house and you breathe the air and you go, and you see that vapor and within seconds it's gone? That's it. That's our life. We're born to this world. On the average, our life expectancy, I, I think I was, a reading, uh, I was reading the average was 69 years worldwide. That's the average life expectancy. That's it. You're here for a moment and then your physical body dies. Our current bodies, it's no, it's no wonder that's the case. We see, even on a daily basis, the wrinkles, the skin breakdown we have, stretch marks, aches, the pains, the weakness that we get as we get older the graying, the whitening of hair. We have failing organs. We have cancer. And there's so many, so many sicknesses, thousands upon thousands that humans are prone to get every year. And every day that we live, we put more and more miles onto our bodies, so to speak, until eventually our body passes away from this earth. So Paul is saying that if our, if our tent or our physical bodies are destroyed, then God will give us a building from God and this building is not a building made of human hands. This is a body that is eternal in the heavens. Paul is speaking about a glorified body that we're going to receive upon the time of the rapture. God will give us a new body. And you might think to yourself, well, why do I need this new body? The reason we need it is because our current bodies that we have, we're not fit for heaven. We're tainted with sin. We're not ready to enter the presence of the Lord in our current state. So in order to explain the need for this, Paul explains uh, a comparison, or gives a comparison between our physical body now and the eternal body that we'll receive in heaven. He describes it in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 42 through 44. He says, The body is sown in corruption. That is our physical body. It is raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. There is a natural body and there is a spiritual body. I was born into this world by two parents who were both sinners. Their parents were also sinners. As far as you go to Adam and Eve, we have ancestors who are sinners. We too ourselves are sinners. Our natural body was sown into corruption. It was sown into dishonor, sown into weakness. But here is a promise from God that if our physical bodies die, if we pass away from this earth, we will receive a glorified body, which is eternal. A body that is incorruptible, a body that is raised in glory, raised in power. How we look forward to that body, that body that is so much better than the one we have now. And we can praise the Lord because we know and we can trust this promise will come true. So Paul continues in verse 2, saying, For in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed with our habitation, which is from heaven. And it's really to no one's surprise that we groan in our physical bodies. We groan because we experience suffering. We experience pain. We experience sadness. We experience 
sorrow. We experience persecution, the temptations of the flesh. We desire to have these glorified bodies. We desire to receive the things that the Lord has promised us. Philippians uh, 3, Paul brings our attention to heavenly things and he reminds us of the transformation that will take place, that we will receive these things. He says in Philippians 3, verse 20, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies, that it may be conformed to his glorious body, according to the working which he is able to even, which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. One day, we're going to leave this earth, and we're not going to be remembered by our citizenship of living in Fremont, California. We won't be remembered by even the state of California that we lived in. We won't be remembered by the country of the United States of America that we lived in, or even the planet Earth. Our citizenship is not here on this earth. Our citizenship, as believers, is and always will be in heaven. And as, citizenships, and as citizens of heaven... We long for the day when our lowly bodies, our physical bodies, will be transformed into a glorious body that is fit for heaven, as the Lord has promised. We long for these glorified bodies. Verse 3 says, If indeed, having been clothed, we shall not be found naked. For we who are in this tent groan, being burdened, not because we want to be unclothed, but further clothed, that mortality may be swallowed up by life. And as believers, we don't want to just be rid of these physical bodies. We, we want to instead be clothed with our glorified bodies so that we won't be naked. We groan for these things because we know that our bodies are perishing. We know that each day they decay more and more. We know that they're mortal. They cannot last past this time on earth. So we look forward to that day when mortality is swallowed up by life patiently waiting for the, the day when our bodies will be incorruptible and glorious, bodies that no longer suffer from sickness and from death, no longer hunger and thirst, no longer are defiled by sin, but instead are pure. We've been given this promise, and we have this guarantee from God. But how do we know we'll receive these things, someone might ask? How do we know, what, what confidence do we have of these things? How can we be sure? And verses 5 through 8 is Paul's second point is, is the confidence that we have through faith. The confidence that we have is two-part. In verses 5 and 6, we learn that in verse 5 it says, Now he who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who also has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So we are always confident, knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. And the confidence that we have of receiving these glorified bodies is because God himself has promised it to us. And God is faithful and God is true and we can rely on God's promises. And if God said it, we can trust that it will happen. But more than that, he's also given us the Holy Spirit as a guarantee that this will occur. And as a believer, when you trust the Lord, we know that the Holy Spirit dwells within us. And because we know that we have the Holy Spirit, we can also trust and know that we will receive these glorified bodies in a time to come. He's guaranteed us this. 
He said it himself. He's given us the Holy Spirit. And we know that this is true. But we also know what to be true is that while we're on this earth, in our physical bodies, we're absent from the Lord. Yes, we pray to him and we're able to, to speak with him that way. And yes, he speaks to us through his word and we can grow closer to him through it. But as far as physical face-to-face interaction, we don't have that right now. We're not with him in heaven in his presence. So that we know that while we're in our physical bodies, we are absent from the Lord. But this shouldn't be a discouragement to us because Paul tells us in verse 7 that we walk by faith and not by sight. Everything in the Christian life is built upon faith. Every single thing from your salvation to the authenticity of God's word to the fact that we'll receive a new glorified body, all of these things we see through the eyes of faith. We hold true to these things even though we can't physically see them. We know that they are true because God has said it is true. And though we can't see him physically, we walk by faith and not by sight. And we trust the promises that God has told us. In fact, God has even said that we are blessed. He says in John 20 that blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. The fact that we don't see the Lord physically does not at all discourage us. We're blessed because we still trust him, even in light of not seeing him physically. We still know that these things are to come. And we believe his word. Another confidence that we have through faith is that we will be with the Lord. In verse 8 it says, We are confident, yes, well pleased rather, to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. In light of our faith, we are confident that we will spend eternity with the Lord forever. We will be in his presence, seeing him face to face. And I want you to notice here that it's not necessarily about the place. Yes, heaven will be amazing. Heaven will be great to be there. But our focus really is on the person that we'll be with. And that person is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the center of our focus. He is the object of our worship. And he is the one who is worthy of our worship. He is the one who came to this earth humbly as a man. He is the one who suffered the persecution by mankind, the rejection. He is the one who went to the cross to pay for your sins and for my sins while we were still his enemies. And he patiently waited for us until the day when we finally trusted in him as our Savior. He is the one who we will be worshiping. He is the one who will receive all of our praise. And to be away from this body means that I can be in heaven with him, worshiping him for eternity. That's going to be an incredible time to see him face to face. There was a, a video I was watching of a, a man who was legally blind from birth. And he always wanted to see, but I mean, he was never able to because he was legally blind. But he would be described through his family or through his friends what the world looked like. He, he could feel and he could touch and and kind of get a shape of what things around him look like. And, and he would, you could just see that in the documentary, just constantly just wanting to know what it, what it will finally be like to see, to finally know what everyone else is seeing. And one day, his family went through and, uh, and purchased a device that allows him to gain just 20 
said 20 to 30 percent of sight, just enough to get a figure of what he sees around him. And buying that machinery, he was able to actually see for the first time. They showed the video of him putting on those glasses and finally saying, I see your face. I see your eyes. I see your nose. I see your hair. I see everything. And he just sobs and weeps because he finally received his sight, finally was able to see what everyone else was seeing, not just having to see through what people had told him. It was now finally his own sight, seeing it for the first time. And we may not have legal blindness like this man did, but currently we cannot see God. We cannot see him face to face. But one day our faith will become sight. One day we'll see our Lord in all his glory and be with him forever. He is the one our eyes long to see. He is the one we desire to be with. And what a day it is to look forward to. So far we know that one day we will pass away from this earth. And we know that as believers, we will receive a glorified body at the time of the rapture. And more than that, we'll be with our Lord forever in heaven. And in light of these truths, we kind of reach the the pinnacle of what this passage is all about. Paul Paul takes the direction to say, then what is our aim in life? What What do we strive for? In verse 9 and 10, he really talks about making it our aim to be well-pleasing to the Lord. Verse 9 says, Therefore, we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to him. That is our goal in life. That is what we strive for. We want everything that we do in our life to continually be centered around pleasing him. The Lord is the one that we live for. It's not about ourselves. It's not about seeking what this world can give us or the temporary satisfactions. It's about serving the Lord and living for Him. When we consider how temporary these bodies are, that they're but a vapor, gone for, here for a second and gone, a tent quickly put up and taken down. When we take our minds off of the here and now and what this world has to offer, we're setting our minds to eternal things and considering what it will be like forever. It would be such a waste of a life to set your aim on just this world, to just set your aim on what this can offer with success or fame or money or whatever it may be. Such a waste because you can take nothing with you. We used to say when we played the game of Monopoly that you have to put it all back in the box when it's over. And that would be the same thing if you're just focusing on this world. You put it all back in the box and you can take nothing with you. And it would leave nothing for eternity to show for. Is your aim to be satisfied with just the things of this world? Or is your aim to see past this world and live for eternity? Is your aim to be well-pleasing to the Lord? This life is going to fade away, but eternity goes on forever. And with that in mind, make it your aim to be well-pleasing to the Lord. And you might ask then, well, how can I practically be well-pleasing to the Lord? Well, Paul offers, in two different places, guides and practical applications of how we can be well-pleasing to the Lord. The first way we can be well-pleasing to the Lord is by offering our bodies as a living sacrifice. In Romans 12, verses 1 and 2, Paul says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, By the mercies of God that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, 
holy and acceptable, or as some places say, well-pleasing to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to the world, to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is good and acceptable and perfect will of God. We can be aiming to be well-pleasing to the Lord by presenting our bodies as a living sacrifice, as an act of service daily to him. Not allowing our minds to be conformed to what this world has to offer or what it wants us to think or what it wants us to do, but instead transform our minds onto things that are only pleasing to him, onto things that are honoring to him, that things that he would be glorified by. By saying no to the things that this world offers, the sin, the temptation that comes before us, and instead we focus our minds on the truth of God and we every day decide that we want to live this out practically. We want our lives to be more in line with the word of God. And another, and this is not an exhaustive list because I could write a whole other sermon on this, but just another way that we can live with our aim to be well-pleasing to the Lord is by walking as children of light. In Ephesians 5, 8 through 10, Paul is addressing the Ephesians and he says, For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. Find out what is acceptable to the Lord. The fruit produced by those who walk in light is all forms of goodness, all forms of righteousness and truth. And those who walk in the light, they demonstrate these types of fruit, and they like and they seek to find out what is acceptable to the Lord. They test every single action. They test every word. They test every thought and say, is this acceptable before the Lord? I want you to suppose that there is a jumbotron of your life broadcasted in Times Square, and this jumbotron displays every action that you continuously do throughout your life. Would you be okay with that? Would you want people to see every action, the hundreds of thousands that pass by, potentially even a million that pass by that that day, would you want them to see your actions? I would assume not. But let's say that it went further than that. And let's say that it not only just showed your actions, it went on to show every word you ever said, displayed for everyone to see and your actions together. You probably still wouldn't want that. And even more so, let's say that it not only took into consideration your actions, your thoughts, not your actions, your, your words, but then it took into account every thought you ever had, everything that ever came to your mind. I'm sure that your life, your actions, your words would be a lot different than they are currently. I'm sure that you would reconsider a lot more what you said, what you did, and what you thought about. And yet, even though we don't have a screen, the Lord still knows every single thought, every single action, every single deed you've ever done. And in light of these things, in light of the fact that the Lord knows all these things, we cannot hide anything from him. It's well known to him. In light of that, if you desire to be acceptable to him, consider every area of your life. Consider every single thing that you do and bring it to the light. Take into consideration the conversations you have. Take into consideration how you serve the Lord, the attitudes that you have while you serve the Lord. Consider the type of entertainment you dwell upon. Consider uh, the time you spend on things. How is your time used? 
Consider how you spend your money. Consider every single aspect of your life and ask, is this well-pleasing to the Lord? Would the Lord be honored by what I'm doing? And if you, if you answer to those questions, no, then make it your aim to be well-pleasing in every single area there is. And you might ask, well, why should I do this? Why does it matter? I'm going to heaven. What difference does it make? Well, verse 10 tells us why we aim to be well-pleasing to the Lord. Why it matters. It says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, each one may, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. We do this because we're all going to appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And the judgment seat of Christ is a time when every believer will come before the Lord and give an account for the service that they've rendered to the Lord, whether good or bad. The judgment seat of Christ does not have to do with salvation at all. It's not about um, judgment for that. When you trust in the Lord as your Savior and you believed on Him, your salvation was secure. You're forever secure with that. It says that, therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You've trusted in Him. There's no going back. There's no losing of the salvation. It's always there once you trust in the Lord. This judgment seat of Christ deals with either the gain of reward for service rendered to Him faithfully or the loss of reward for not serving Him in the right manner. But the end purpose of the judgment seat of Christ is that the Lord wants to reward us for faithful service for him. He wants to give and bestow upon us gifts for the, for the excellent service we've done for him. So we read about this, um, about, about this in uh, 1 Corinthians um, 9, about seeking to run a race where the Lord is honored, where he is uh, well pleased with us and to setting our mind on, on, on receiving a reward from the Lord. It says in 1 Corinthians 9, Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but one receives the prize? Run in a way in which you may obtain it. For everyone, competes, for everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things. Now they do not obtain a perishable crown, but now they do it for, to obtain a perishable crown, but we for an imperishable crown. Therefore I run thus, not with uncertainty, thus I fight, not as one who beats the air, but I discipline my body and bring it into subjection, lest when I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. And Paul is saying that the Christian life is like a race. Runners in a race, they discipline themselves. They are faithful to that task. They practice endurance, they exercise self-discipline. Runners in a race, they all have the same aim in sight. They want to reach that finish line. They have months and sometimes even a year or so of training before they run that race. And they're prepared for it. They have in their mind to receive that prize that's offered at the end. And usually at a race you'll get you know, a medal, Sometimes you'll get cash value of gift cards or something. Sometimes you'll get a crown even. Um, sometimes it's just a certificate saying that you completed the race. But whatever the, the races offer, they're perishable items. They don't last. Mostly they're sentimental value because 
you did it, but no one else, when they saw that medal, would be any worth of it. It's things that are just not eternal. They're just temporary things, no lasting value. But in the Christian race and in the Christian life, we run to obtain an imperishable crown, a crown that doesn't rust away, a crown that doesn't waste away. As runners in a race, they don't run with uncertainty. They don't run to the left and to the right, and they don't, they don't waste a step. They run with a strive, with an aim in mind to reach the end as fast as they can, to reach it as best as they can, to show their best talents and how they have been faithfully preparing for this time to run with endurance. Fighters, when they fight, every punch is set for a specific target, a specific aim. They're not foolishly just beating the air and missing. And in the same way, the Christian life, we have an aim. And our aim is to be well-pleasing to the Lord through our service. And we discipline our bodies so that we can obtain these rewards that the Lord offers. God, he, he, wants, to, he, wants, to, he wants to reward us faithfully for the service we've done for him. And I'll just list a couple, and we don't have the time for this today. But I'm just going to list a couple of the rewards that the Lord offers. We already talked about this one earlier, but the incorruptible crown. That is a crown given for the faithfulness and self-control to believers. The crown of righteousness. A crown given to those who love the Lord's appearing. And in doing so, they lived a life that was righteous in their service towards the Lord. The crown of glory. It's given to faithful elders who exhibited um, in their actions and in their shepherding of the flock, they were faithful in doing it. A crown of glory. The crown of rejoicing. The crown of rejoicing being seeing those ones that you've invested your life into, those who were unsaved and you walked alongside them and led them to the Lord or you were an active part of their lives. Seeing those children of yours, spiritual children, coming to and rejoicing with the Lord forever and eternity. They are your crown of rejoicing, as Paul says. The crown of life given to those who endure persecution, endure trials, even are willing to give their lives for Christ's name, will receive the crown of life. I've said it before, but again, the Lord desires to reward us. He desires to see those who are faithfully serving him, desiring to be well-pleasing to him. And in turn, he wants to give us a reward. And you might ask, well, how will it be determined that I gave faithful service to the Lord? How will it be determined that I did faithfully serve him? Well, we find out exactly how that will be done. 1 Corinthians 3.9 tells us that. It says, For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's fields. You are God's building. According to the grace of God, which he has given me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation and another builds on it. Let each one take heed to how he builds on it. For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. Now if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stone, wood, hay, straw, let each one's work, each one's work will become clear, for the day will declare it because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. 
If anyone's work which has been built on it endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet is through fire. And the idea here is that Paul has laid a foundation for the church of Corinth. This foundation that we have as believers is a solid foundation. This foundation is Jesus Christ and his work on the cross for us. And as believers, we build upon this foundation with our service towards him. Paul gives us the illustration of building materials. We have precious stones, silver, gold, wood, hay, straw. All these are materials. And which one would you guys figure would be the ones that would make it through fire? It would be the precious stone, the silver, the gold, the wood, the hay, the straw. They would all burn up in a fire. And the, the precious stones that he's speaking of, those represent faithful service, lasting, eternal value for the Lord kind of service. Service that was done in a humble and joyful manner for the Lord. Service that wasn't tainted with sin. Service that wasn't done with ulterior motives. And on the other hand, we have the wood, the hay, the straw, all the materials that have no lasting eternal value, all the ones that would be burned up upon judgment. Service that wasn't done rightfully for the Lord. Service that was done with grumbling and complaining. Service that was done with sin associated with it. Service that's not worthy before the Lord. And we know that the Lord, just like a blacksmith, will test a metal before the fire and see any imperfections and work, away, work around that. The Lord, too, will test our works before fire and see if there's anything that has worth, anything that's lasting value, anything that's eternal, and the rest will be burned away. So the Lord says that if anyone's work is burned up, if anyone's work was the, the wood, the hay, the straw, those works will be burned up, and he will suffer a loss of reward. But he himself will be saved. Again, it's not about our salvation that's concerned here. Our salvation is secure. But loss of reward is what we will suffer from it. The judgment seat of Christ is all about the gain or loss of reward. And the Lord wants to reward us. But what type of building material are you working with? Will your service for him be the gold, the silver, the precious stone? Will it have eternal lasting value? Or are you building with the wood, the hay, the straw that will be burned up and consumed and you'll have nothing to show for as far as rewards? Make it your aim that at the end of your life you can enter into eternity and have the Lord say, well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. Our desire in life our aim in life is to be well-pleasing to the Lord because we know that one day we're going to give an account before him of our lives, of the service we've done for him. And we want to hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant. We know what will happen to believers when we die. We know that we'll face the judgment seat of Christ where we'll either receive reward or we'll see a loss of it. But Paul also wants to emphasize at the very end of this passage or this section what will happen or what happens to those who die and perish from this earth and yet have not trusted the Lord as their Savior. And this last section is really the warning to unbelievers in light of eternity. 
It says in verse 11, Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. But we ourselves, are, but we are well known to God, and I trust are also well known in your conscience. The Bible tells us clearly what's going to come. If an unbeliever dies, it means eternal punishment. It means eternal separation from God. They will go to hell where they will be waiting a judgment from the Lord for all the sins that they've committed throughout their entire lives. This judgment that is talked about in Revelation is called the great, the great white throne judgment. And we read about it in Revelation 20. It says in verse 12, And I saw the dead and small, I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and the books were open. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one according to his works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Here we have a scene of all those men, both great and small, who did not trust in the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior. Believers of all ages standing before the Lord, being judged who is by the righteous judge, who is the Lord Jesus Christ. And they will give an account for their lives. And God will judge every single person based on the sins that they've committed in their lives. Everyone for the things that they've done. And ultimately, these ones spoken about here in this great white throne judgment, their names are not found in the book of life because they have not trusted in the Lord as their Savior. So their sin that condemns them and they are cast into the lake of fire where they will spend eternity, where there is no joy, there is no peace. A place where I just want to give a few descriptions of it based on other passages. A place in Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians, it describes it as a place that they will be punished with an everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. Revelations 21 describes it as a lake which burns with fire and brimstone. Matthew 13 says that God will cast them into the furnace of fire where there will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Pain so agonizing that people are grinding their teeth, wailing, not just crying, but wailing, screaming out in pain because it's so awful. It's a terrible and frightening place. And knowing this should cause terror in the minds of unbelievers and fear for what was to come if they don't trust the Lord. They will suffer agony that's never ending because of their rejection of the Lord. And if you're not a believer in Christ, I plead with you today, trust him as your savior. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. See past this life. See past the temporary things that it offers. Because once you pass away from this life, you don't get a second chance. You can't say once you die, oh wait, I changed my mind. I didn't mean it. I was so close. I meant to do it, but I didn't have a chance to do it. It's too late. Once you die, there is no second chance. Today is the day of salvation. God offers salvation so freely today if you would just be willing to take it. 
And as believers, we know the terror of the Lord. We know the punishment that unbelievers will face. And so we persuade unbelievers. We plead with them, please, trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Think about your eternity. We are the whistleblowers who say, stop. Don't go down this route. It ends in eternal separation, eternal persecution. It leads to destruction. Don't go down this way. But we also know that the Lord does not desire to see anyone perish. The Lord does not want to see anyone go to the lake of fire for eternity. He tells us in 2 Peter that he is long-suffering towards us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God is a just God, but he is also a loving God. And he desires for every single person to come to know him. He loved us so much that he sent his only begotten son to this world. That if anyone, it says that whosoever believes in him, in Jesus Christ, should not perish, should not be sentenced to an eternity in the lake of fire forever. But will have everlasting life or eternal life forever in him, ever with him in heaven. Consider eternity and the terror of where you'll spend it if you don't trust in the Lord. But also consider his love for you and how he desires to be with you forever. My only question is for you, what are you waiting for? What's holding you back from trusting in the Lord as your Savior? There is no better time than now to trust in the Lord as your Savior. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Let's just pray. Dear Lord, we just thank you for the truths in your word. We thank you that this body, although we know it's, it's wasting away, we know that we'll receive a glorified body in heaven. And Lord, we know that there is a promise of that glorified body and we can trust that promise because you said it will happen and you've given your Holy Spirit as a promise. Lord, we know that even though we can't physically see you, one day we will be with you forever in heaven. And Lord, we are so encouraged to know that we will finally see you face to face and be able to worship you. And Lord, in light of that, we want our lives to be aimed at well, aimed to be well-pleasing to you, Lord. We want to strive to run the race, to, aim, to earn a reward from you, Lord. We want to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. I pray, Lord, that we would think clearly and think thoroughly about eternity and make sure that we're living in light of that. And to anyone who has not trusted in the Lord today, Lord, I pray that you would save their souls. Lord, we pray that they would realize what eternity will be like without you. And pray that they would come to the saving knowledge of you. Lord, we pray today that if anyone's on the fence, if anyone has not yet trusted you, that they would come to know you today. We pray all these things in your name. Amen.